Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It was sometime in, I think, 2006. I may not have the date year right, but I read a book uh, written by Lance Armstrong. Um, it was an autobiography of sorts. He titled it, It's, it's Not About the Bike. Um, and in the, in the book, Lance Armstrong is a world, well, not, it, this is true of his life, and he wrote, wrote about it. He's a world champion cyclist, and he recounts where he got his diagnosis of cancer, uh, what kind of treatments, those grueling treatments that he had to endure um, when he got that um, diagnosis of testicular cancer, he was given a 20% chance of survival. And then um, that, the book was written in like 2000. I read it six, eight years after he wrote it. Uh, it was in the late 90s when that happened. And a year later, uh, two years later after that, after coming out of that cancer, he won the Tour de France. By the time I read the book, Lance Armstrong was super famous. It's really why I read the book was something, I knew something about him. Um, he, and at that time when I read it, he had won the Tour de France seven consecutive times. It was a, a, a record that had never, never been, um, uh, never happened and never been passed since. Um, it, you know, reading about a guy that has a 20% chance of survival and within a very short amount of time starts winning the ultimate cycling race uh, in the world is pretty amazing. Um, it was a fascinating read to read about this guy who grew up as a triathlete and, and then he transitioned to be a pro cyclist and um, he, he over, uh, he, uh, the account of how he overcame all of this and what he did to continue to be at the top of his uh, career, um, it, was, it was inspiring. You know, uh, he, he not only um, went from uh, being semi-good to like the top, but he did it seven times over and over again. I wasn't into cycling at that time. I didn't know anything about Pro cycling, I had heard of the Tour de France. I knew it was in France. And I knew they were riding bikes. That was about all I knew about it. But, uh, but at that time, he was so famous that it was essentially his uh, name and renown was, it was in a transcended sport. You know, he was on all the talk shows and, and everything. Everyone knew who he was. He dated famous people people, you know. Um, I had worked with a guy that was in, he was a cyclist, and so he would tell me about all the statistics, all the things that he would do to be able to succeed in his career. Um, and it was, it was, it was really, it was something. It was fascinating. And I think you've all heard the rest of the story about Lance Armstrong, that throughout his career, there were rumors and investigations into cheating. Um, it was suspected that throughout his time of winning the Tour de France over and over again, that there were performance-enhancing drugs or doing things with his blood, and, and he denied that. There was a lot of um, court issues there, but years later, he was caught. It was proven that he was cheating, and uh, all of his Tour de France wins were removed from him, and he was banned from competing uh, again. Um, he denied it for a while, but eventually he confessed on the 
Oprah Winfrey show and says, yeah, he really did cheat, and that was true. And now, that's a story um, that's true about two types of discipline, um, or actually it's like two sides of discipline, and we're familiar with both. We're familiar with disciplining our bodies. We all do this in some way. We may not be the elite athletes, um, but we do make rules for ourselves. Uh, Whether we write them down or they're just in our mind or it's the way that we operate. And we're anywhere along that spectrum. uh, We can find ourselves in some some form of disciplining ourselves. And we may not be disciplined. Uh, We may not be quite strict. We set, our, uh, set rules for ourselves on the types of food we eat or how much we eat or when we eat or we exercise and we determine when we will exercise for how long. Uh, we set different stats that we're going to follow or things that we want to achieve. Um, there's all kinds of goals that we set for ourselves or the things that we try to accomplish. Uh, we may do spreadsheets or a journal uh, just to follow our progress and see how we're doing and and are are we achieving what we want. We may study our competition and that competition may be in sports, but it may be as we look at other people and set ourselves up, how do we rank with that other person in our own minds? Um, Sometimes we want to beat them. We're competitive. Uh, Sometimes Uh, This is very detailed, and it's in order, and other times it's not. It's disorganized. And this is part of our makeup. Each one of us is made in God's image. And being made in his image, there are traits or aspects of God that we mirror. And one of those is order. Putting things in order. Our God is a God of order. And with all the chaos in the world, we may think that's not true or deny that. Like, look at all this craziness and wild disorder. This can't be ordered. But you woke up this morning and the sun rose. It will set and you will eventually sleep just like you've done day in and day out and how the sun has operated every day of your life. There was no wild prophecy that said, sometime around this time, autumn is going to come and leaves are going to fall and the weather is going to get a little bit cooler and then it's going to come into winter. No, it's happened in God's perfect timing just like it has every year. These are the rules Set by God. God designed the world. He designed how things are to operate. But God hasn't just designed seasons or just designed how the days are set to operate in certain ways. He's also created you and me. And he has designed us. And he has a plan for us. God has designed us to know him and to love him, and to represent his values accurately to the world around us through our relationships and through our interactions with other people. 
You know, as our creator, God defines what is right and what is good for his creation. And he warns us what is bad and what is evil for us. For us to live lives with joy and with purpose, to live the good life, as it were, we must recognize and submit to God as our master. We must allow him to be the one that teaches us how to think about the world and then to live in that way that he says is right and what is good. A requirement for living in a right relationship with God is being right in God's eyes, living in the ways that he has told us are right and good. But in our human rebellion against the creator, we chose and choose to think and live in ways that God says are evil. And we could talk about evangelism and salvation, uh, right, and, and how before we knew him, we all were, uh, did not um, live according to the way God has called us to. But today I'm speaking to the believers. And the second aspect of discipline is one that we've all experienced as well. When we miss the mark, we must be corrected. So sin essentially is missing the mark. If we had a bullseye up here, We'd have the, the uh, if we had a target, sorry, if we had a target, we'd have the bullseye right in the middle, right? That is God's design for how we are to live. If we hit that target right there in the bullseye, we're doing what God calls us to do. We're living the way God has called us to live. Anything outside of it is missing the mark. That's sin. That's not pleasing to God. So the target doesn't look like a, a dot and then concentric circles, it's just one dot. That's it. And that's the way we do it. That's it. We got to hit that. If we miss it, we've missed the mark. And when we miss the mark, we've got to be corrected. Our parents corrected us. Our bosses correct us. The law corrects us. This is discipline of all kinds. And we know God disciplines us as well. Look at this in Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. It says, in your struggle against sin, he's talking to believers here, okay? In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the proof. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. God uses different means to discipline his children. And the one we talk about today is the church. This local body of believers is one of the agents of change God employs to produce fruit of righteousness in his children. Now, one of the things we think about when we think about church discipline is that thing that we say, we're going to have a members meeting today. Everyone that's not a member, please leave. Members, please stay behind. We've got a little announcement. And anytime we hear that, everyone's like, oh, I don't want to hear this. It's not good. It's not pleasant. That's only one part of church discipline. Um, It's actually what I would think, I suggest this is my opinion, but I think it's true. It's probably the smallest part of church discipline when we talk about church discipline in the local body. Um, I think it's the smallest part because it happens uh, not as often as the other parts. I may be getting ahead of myself here, but because church discipline is part of your responsibility. It's interesting, right? That church discipline, when we talk about it, we're talking about you as part of the church. That you have a big part in that. Believers are to have disciplined lives. And in that, we live in this world where we are to represent our Father in the appropriate and right way. We don't only examine our own lives and work to keep those in line with Scripture through the help of the Holy Spirit. But we have a responsibility to help others. Last week I talked about the one another's and I had to breeze through about two-thirds of them because I ran out of time. But all those one another's, so much of that in the New Testament is how we are to be involved in each other's lives. Why do we need to get involved in each other's lives when it comes to discipline? You know, that's one of those things. Why do we need to do it? Well, first, we need to be concerned about the reputation of believers. How are these believers, my friends, fellow members, image bearers, how are they known among the brethren and also outside the church? We need to be concerned about their reputation. But more importantly than that, we need to be concerned about the reputation of the church. This is God's church. It should be known as a well-disciplined and have a good reputation. But even more important than that, we need to be concerned about the reputation of Christ. Ultimately, the reputation of the believer and the reputation of the church is a reflection of Christ. And we are, to be, uh, we are called to be like a mirror reflecting his righteousness And if we are undisciplined, if we are unruly or out of order, we're putting Christ's reputation in disrepute. We are giving Christ a bad reputation. Now, can we actually give him a bad reputation? No, he has the reputation he has. But what we are is a broken mirror that is giving a false indication of what his reputation is. Let's look at another passage to show this. 
2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, I was looking down here, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now listen, if you look at that, at the beginning of that, it says, don't have anything to do with him. Then it says, if he doesn't listen, don't have anything to do with him. And so people read that and go, okay, if somebody is in sin, we're not to have anything to do with him. But it also says, warn the brother, encourage, command, don't treat as an enemy. Well, that seems like it's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? Like, don't have anything to do with him, but then you got to have something to do with him, right? Well, what he's saying here is have nothing to do with him is not our first move. That's not our first response. We are to warn, to encourage, to command. Look at all of the verses on how we are to admonish, to rebuke. Well, if, who do we admonish and rebuke? It's somebody that is not falling in line with Scripture, right? Somebody who is not living the way they should live. So that have nothing to do with... Over time, he doesn't listen to what we've written in this. Then we have nothing to do with him. Paul is telling the undisciplined to be disciplined. And he's telling the church to warn those who are undisciplined. Now, I say, church discipline is your responsibility, church. I can't tell you how many times somebody then comes to me with 1 Peter 4.8. You know what 1 Peter 4, 8 says? I think I got it on here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What do people typically think, maybe you think this, that that verse is telling us to do? It means, go ahead, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so let's not, let's not necessarily address it. We're going to just keep loving Keep loving them, keep loving them. I'm going to keep loving them. Maybe God will address that later. I'm just going to absorb it, right? Because remember, sin is something, is, 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 we have to absorb something, right? When God was sinned against, we sin against God, right? He absorbed some of that. Part of that was Christ taking on our sin, Right? And dying on the cross so that we uh, can have um, salvation. But people will use that all the time, this verse, 
to not address sin in someone's life. And they, they, they use it to say, we're going to overlook sin. I hear people say this, oh, I'm just going to pray for the person. That's great. You should. But if you see sin, wait, we need to address it. It's almost as if the idea is it is loving to let someone continue in their sin when you see them in it. And if I said that to somebody, is it loving to let someone continue to sin when you see them in that sin? No. It, that wouldn't be loving. And people wouldn't agree with me. Now listen, I get it. I get why we want to take that and that means this. Because it is hard to address sin in someone else. It is uncomfortable. I will, I'll tell you this. I fear broken relationships. I don't want to address a sin in someone and then now they don't like me or they're angry with me or they don't want to have anything to do with me. I, I hate conflict. We hate conflict. If you love conflict, you've got a problem. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to be thought as judgmental, right? We don't, we don't want people to think that we're saying, well, I don't have a problem, but I, you have a problem. I, you know, oh, you hypocrite. Like, I don't want people to think that. But the problem with not addressing sin in someone, especially someone in the church that we are fellow members of, uh, the fellow, we're fellow members of the church together, the problem with that is it's inconsistent with Scripture. Does God ad- absorb your sin and not address it? Well, obviously, each and every sin we commit, no, you're right, because that, that would, we couldn't bear that. But is there sin in our life that God does choose to address consistently? Do you feel convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit at times? Do you have consequences for your sin that you see at times? It is addressed. He loves us. But by allowing us to continue in our sin, we'd be headed towards destruction. He, He doesn't do that. Have you ever had somebody sin against you. And I mean, this is a believer sinning against a believer, and I don't mean some small slight or something that maybe was misconstrued, but a real honest-to-goodness through and through sin. And you feel like you're going to just cover it. I'm not going to address it. But then you just struggle with it. It's like one of those things you just can't get past. Each time you see that person, that's what's in your mind. You go to bed at night, that's what you're thinking about, is this unresolved sin. You know, it harms your relationship. It it lingers. It makes it hard to be in true fellowship with that person when they've sinned against you and it's not dealt with. You know, and then sometimes, in God's goodness, push comes to shove and it's like, okay, it does get dealt with. You know, you've reached a limit like, okay, I can't handle this anymore. We're going to deal with it. You discuss it. Forgiveness is granted. And then it's no longer an issue. It's like a, this relief. You know, in Ephesians 4.16, Paul describes a healthy church as one in which every member is meeting needs. And as a result, the body is not only healthy, But the body is increasing. 
And Hebrews 10.24 commands believers to stimulate one another to love and good works. And there are numerous passages in the New Testament exhorting believers to love and to care for one another. We, we talked about a lot of those last week. This love and care for one another is not to cease when a believer does wrong uh, that hinders growth and um, interpersonal relationships. Love is to motivate us. We can't ignore or destroy like the legalists do. Love cannot stop when conflicts arise. Love must seek to restore. We are to care for one another when the need is the greatest. However, we got to be careful. The greater problem, the greater the difference, the greater the conflict, the greater the love must be manifested towards that person, and the greater the need to follow Christ's principles. It's not loving to let someone stay in their sin and not address it. Now, I'm not talking about personal preferences here. We've got to be very careful that we're not talking about personal preferences. I mean a clear breaking of scriptural truth, right? We've got to find book, chapter, and verse, or the principle in the, that's in those and what someone is, is doing be able to address that. Now, let me show you a contrast to 1 Peter 4.8 that uses the same words. It uses the, the same language, but I, get, I, I believe will give you a different perspective if we're tempted not to address sin in someone's life. James 5.19-20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders... So listen, this is talking to believers... He's talking to believers that uh, have believers that are wandering from the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How did they cover the multitude of sins in that? He brought back a brother. Why did he bring back a brother? Not by just hoping that it gets better, not by not addressing the sin. It says from the truth we bring him back. Use the truth. How do we bring back somebody that's wandering? We show them that they're wandering. You're doing the wrong thing. Now, there's all kinds of things that keep us from wanting to do this or the reasons why we may want to not address something right away. Um, I think the first thing that I hear a lot of people say is, well, um, like they may look at me and go, oh, you've got, you've got everything put together. Like, oh, you're going to address this sin in my life, but look at you, you've got sin in your own life. And you're like, I do. It's true. I have, I have sin in my own life. But if we're going to address sin with somebody, there are some things we need to do, right? Um, oh, did I do that? We've got to examine our own hearts first before addressing others. have got to look at myself first before I go to somebody else. Two passages. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, 
but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. We've got to examine our own lives. I have talked with people, and I've seen this in my own life too, where when I've taken the time to think about my own heart before I address it in someone else's, I've recognized that this person is sinning in response to my sin against, to them. That I sinned against them. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, make it okay for them to sin in response to my sin, but I made it easy for them to sin against me because I sinned first. So if I'm going to address my own heart, I'm going to look at, do I have a responsibility in this? How am I going to address this with this person? Do I come pointing fingers and saying where they're wrong without acknowledging maybe my own responsibility in that, maybe recognizing uh, struggles in their own life, hardships, any of those things? I need to be looking at my own heart. How am I speaking? How am I thinking about this? Is it a preference issue? All of those things, we need to be addressing them in our own. I need to look at my, who, whose sin am I most responsible for? Mine, your own, right? I said mine and your own. <laughs> the person, right? It's a, I'm responsible most for my own sin, right? You're responsible most for your own sin. So I need to be addressing that first before I go and address someone else's sin. Does that mean I got to be perfect? Absolutely not. It's never going to happen, right? So we are called to address sin in other people's lives, but I need to be looking at my own heart first, right? Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that just means a believer. If you are a believer, you are spiritual, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to address sin in other people's lives, but do it in a spirit of gentleness and watch ourselves. We can get caught up in that and sin against that person when we're addressing it. So we need to look at that in ourselves. Now, how does this work in the church? Matthew 18, 15. I didn't show this to you. I don't have this one written down. So sorry. Matthew 18, 15. I'll read this to you. If your brother sins against you, now all you women, that also means sisters too. So it's, uh, this goes for men and women. If your brother sins against you, that was a joke, sorry. If, you're, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's step one. If you see sin, if they sin against you, you see them sinning against other people, 
We are to go one-on-one. It's a private thing. It's a time just you and them to address this. We want to make sure that we're clear on what it is that we're addressing. The goal is restoration. We want to be restoring them. So we want to go one-on-one. Now, sometimes people will look at this Matthew 18 passage like, oh, there's three steps. Step one, I go, I talk to Deb. Deb, I see this in your life. She goes, I'm not sure I see that. Okay, all right, step two. We're moving to step two right away. I hope not. We need to be very, very careful there. We need to give time for the Holy Spirit to work, for people to process. Um, There is times when someone has addressed sin in someone else's life, and the way they did it was not the best. And so it wasn't received that well. Um, So sometimes we just got to give time to work through that. So that's step one can actually happen a few times. That can take time for that to, to go, to work through that. Maybe that's a, I have a conversation, the person says, yeah, I don't see the sin. But then they come back and they're like, you know, I've been thinking about it. I don't see it, but answer these questions. So we have another conversation like, yeah, I'm still not seeing it. Show me where this is. So it's a, it takes some time there. It's not a, it's not a somebody that's being belligerent it's not necessarily somebody who says, I, you know, I'm not sinning here and you are wrong. It may just be a hard, it may be a miscommunication. It may be a struggle to really see it in their own life. We all have blind spots. And sometimes people highlight our blind spot. And because it's a blind spot, sometimes we don't even see that we have actually done that. Sometimes it's, is this sin? Did I actually commit a sin? I need you to help me understand where is this a sin? How, how did I sin? I'm not seeing it as a sin. So that step one can take time. And we want to make sure that we give time for that to happen. We don't want to be in a hurry with this. We don't want to be in a rush with this. Um, you know, people will also go to the other very familiar passage of church discipline in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, right? Where the man is sleeping with his father's wife, so his stepmom, right? And Paul tells the church to remove him and treat him as an unbeliever. So they say, there, that was quick. Well, the reason that was quick was not because that's the example of how we do church discipline. It's because the church knew about it and wasn't doing anything about it. And it was the church's reputation, believer's reputation, Christ's reputation. Uh, that, that had gone on too long. Paul says, this has gone on too long. Deal with it right away. But if we look here, and if we look at the New Testament as a whole, when we are working with somebody, we should give time for things to, to process, right? Now, it says, after that, if you've won your brother, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Hallelujah, we, we celebrate and we're happy there. We rejoice together. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. So, this is not going and finding two or three more people that we can really amp up the pressure and we've, we're going we're gonna to strong arm this person into to repentance. No, this is witnesses, probably people that are not necessarily associated with this, that can listen to both sides 
and see, is this a miscommunication issue? And maybe we can help each other understand one another. How can we deal with this? How can we, do you see, are they, they sit there and they examine, is this an actual sin issue? Well, maybe it isn't. And now we've got to talk, the first person that brought it, maybe we need to help you understand what is sin and what's not sin or help them understand that. Maybe it is and this person is not listening, is digging their heels in. Well, now we want to encourage you. So we are, um, we're helping. Maybe there's confusion. Um, maybe it's not necessarily a hard heart. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a very hard heart, and this person is saying, no, I'm just not going to listen. Once again, step two. This is step two. We want to take time for this as well. We're not rushing any of this. We're not pushing this through. We're not trying to move this along quickly. Now, we don't want to stretch this out a year, right? We don't want that. If, if things are happening, if people are repenting or they, they, progress seems to be happening, we're going to let progress happen. We're going to be continuing to pray. Thank God that that's happening. But if it doesn't, if they continue to say no, they're not going to deal with it or it's not sin, it says then, if he refuses to listen to them, you then tell it to the church. This is where we have those member meetings. And we let you know about the sin. We give you as much detail as is necessary for you to understand what the issue is. And so, it then says, if he doesn't listen to the church, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be a, a, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, essentially an unbeliever. You treat them as an unbeliever. Now, one of the things that is uh, missed sometimes in here is telling it to the church. We tell you, we tell you it is the church. So in this, usually, I think just about every time, when we have performed this here at Faith Bible Church and we get to this third step and we tell you, we usually give you a timeline so you recognize this hasn't been quick. Um, I can think of instances where there may be times where it would be quick, and that's going to be when people are in danger, if there's something, it rises to a level where it needs to move quickly. Praise God, we have not had that experience here, so we have not had to do that. But I can, I can think of instances where certain sins, certain ways people are sinning, that would, that would be necessary. Um, but we've not had that. So we give you a timeline. We let you know how long we've taken, who's been involved. But we're not telling you this just so you're informed. Hey, just so you know, that's, this is what's happened. Because what does it say? Tell it to the church, and then what does it say after that? If he refuses to what? Listen to the church. Well, that's the church. We tell it to the church, and then they're refusing to listen to the church. So that's your responsibility. And I hear people say, well, I don't know that person, so I don't need to get involved. Well, you are involved because you're members of one body, this local body of believers. And we are wanting you to be involved. We are involving you at this point. We've not involved you for these first two steps. The people that needed to be involved were involved. And if you look at it, sin happens. It's one-on-one small group of people, right? Then they don't, it's not resolved. Sin is still there. 
the group of people gets a little bit bigger. We're not talking to other people in this. You know, this one-on-one, it's who is involved in that? Just one-on-one. This is who we're talking about. It's just us discussing it. We get two or three others. So we've got three, four, five people in there. It's the, the uh, circle of people that are involved in understanding and know what's going on. It's just a little bit bigger. We're keeping it within that group. We're not talking to other people about it. We're not involving other people. Then we go to the church. The goal is just keep the, the people that need to be uh, in the know in the know for as long as that needs to be, uh, right? But who's involved? The one-on-one, it's those two people are involved. When you get two or three, those two or three now are involved to talk to this person, right? Now when we involve the church, now you are to be talking to this person. Now I made a joke like we're not trying to put pressure on, but that does add pressure, right? It adds pressure when somebody comes and tells me I'm in sin and I'm like, no. Now two or three other people come and talk to me. I'm like, whoa, now, wow, three people are telling me I'm in sin, you know? Now I'm like, oh, wow, the whole church is telling me I'm in sin? Wow, maybe I'm missing something here. That's the goal. That would be wonderful. Okay, now I see it. Wow, there, this is pressure. It's not in a, it's always to be with gentle, to be gentle. It's not to be heavy-handed, not to lord it over somebody, not to, um, not to be mean, I guess, in that. But you have a responsibility as members of this church when we bring, bring that to that third step to go and encourage that person to repent. It's always to, re, for re, the goal is always for restoration. We want them to be restored back and we want to rejoice. Just a couple years ago, we had somebody where this happened, right? We brought them before the church. They were unrepentant. And they repented, and they came before us, and they told us they repented, and we rejoiced, and it was wonderful. We want to see that. This is the way God has designed this to work, and it's not always going to happen. If you think about it, if, it gets to, if you're a believer, you shouldn't need that much pressure on you to repent. Now, people get stuck in sin, right? Typically, People that have reached the point of that third step have separated themselves from other people in the church for a, long, a significant amount of time. Because if you do that, either you're wanting to be outside of the fellowship of believers, or as you get further along in your sin, you don't want to be in the fellowship of believers. And we want to try and encourage them to do that. Now, if we have somebody that we remove from our membership, Our goal then is not excommunication like you see in the Catholic Church where you are shunned and we want nothing to do with you. They're an unbeliever. We continue to share the gospel. If they are a family member, you can eat dinner with them as a family member but not as a believer, right? The goal then is always to be um, sharing the gospel. We want them to be saved. We want to be helping with that. And then the last little bit of this is the end of that chapter, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Um, this is very, uh, th- th- this is the, the one of how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times, 70 times seven, right? Uh, we keep forgiving. We may have to help somebody through step one more than once. We go to them. We got to address it. 
Six months later, we're back at it again. We forgive them. If they're repenting, they're working on it, we forgive them, keep moving forward. But we always have to be forgiving, living with a forgiving spirit, willing to forgive, not withholding forgiveness, helping one another. So church discipline, I talk with people when they become members, and I'm wrapping this up right now. When people become members, I tell, uh, tell them that uh, Faith Bible Church, we practice church discipline. And in church discipline, I, we talk through those three steps. The vast majority of what we do is in those first two steps. And so the vast majority of church discipline that's happening in our church, most people don't know is happening. And praise God for that. Praise God that we don't see it. Now, the people involved, of course, see it. Um, and I'm sure it's happening I know it's happening because somebody may tell me at another time, hey, this person came and confronted me and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm like, praise God. I'm so glad that happens. Um, and I hope that we're doing that. I hope that you're doing that. When I do these new members uh, interviews, I talk about church discipline. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to confront? Now, it's easy to say, yeah, I'm willing to do it until it happens, right? I'm, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'm always willing to do it. And then it happens and I got to confront someone like, well, maybe I'm not as willing as I thought, but we, we are, the, we're willing. But then I ask them, are you willing to receive it? Because that's difficult as well, right? Are you willing to receive someone coming and giving you correction? And everyone says yes to, and I understand that. And some, on some level, I'm like, yes, I do. I want that. But it's like asking your child, do they want to get spanked? Well, no. No, I don't want spanking. But as an adult, I'm very thankful my parents spanked me. Um, I'm thankful for the discipline that I received because it helped me. It helped me to understand what's right and wrong and what the parameters are and where the uh, ditches are or the guide, guide rails. We need those things. We need this. And God has designed and chose the church to operate as one of those agents of discipline. And we need to, we need to be willing to... Uh, do that and to receive it.